Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, December 10th, 2015. And in listening to the introduction, uh, world-renowned and all that stuff, it probably would be interesting to some listeners to know that there are people from 26 countries that are now following my blog. My phone's been ringing off the hook this week after coming back from vacation, as I'm being called by attorneys across the country seeking guidance on rescission and other issues involving foreclosure defense. Apparently, they've decided that after making fun of me for 10 years, they uh, would now like to use me uh, for guidance and service, uh, which I'm happy to do, and I've been obsessive about it. I, uh, I've been described as a monomaniac with a mission. And my mission is to help each one of you, whether you're a lawyer or a homeowner or somebody else that just has an interest in what has been going on in our country. One of our guests tonight has some experience with rescission, successful experience. And tonight we're extending the show for questions and answers as we try to accommodate the demands of our listeners. Also, I need to issue a disclaimer. While the moderator of a show called Garfield Goose is tailgating my show, and I know the guy, nice guy, neither he nor his show is sponsored or endorsed by us. Um... Uh, Apparently, Garfield Goose is some fictional Midwestern character, so it is only fitting that tonight we is devoted to finding out about fictional characters in the mortgage market. There are a few things that irk me more than the use of phantom lenders. We all know the phrase I coined back in 2007, when I said that companies that were originated the loan, originating the loans were really brokers and conduits for Wall Street banks who had no connection with anyone who had actually advanced the money other than the fact that they stole it from them, the investors. But our guests tonight have collaborated on a white paper soon to be published as a book that I endorse in fact, I would consider it required reading, about phantom lenders and a number of issues surrounding that. 
neither the pretender lenders nor the phantom lenders were lenders. They never loaned a dime to borrowers. But phantom lenders are companies that don't even exist and never did exist. In many cases, they were never even registered as fictitious names for any company, much less a real lender. Real lenders in the mortgage market account for barely 4% of all loans. The rest are still going along with their regular business plan, which is approving loans funded by unsuspecting investors who think their money is being managed inside a remic trust, which turns out to be empty. By this point, most of the remic trusts don't even exist anymore either. The investors who bought the paper of empty remic trusts are now exchanging their interests in the first empty trust for shares in a new empty remic trust. Bill Pavolo, whose name I've been mispronouncing for two years, <laughs> apologize for that. Bill Padillo hit the news recently when he prevailed in a case involving multiple counts against his pretender-slash-phantom lenders. The usual motion to dismiss was filed, and it was denied, as it should be. The question was merely whether the complaint stated a cause of action, which, if proven, would result in relief to him. The answer was yes, as it usually has been for any homeowner who filed a similar complaint. But this time, the judge agreed with Padillo, and the case in Oregon, all about rescission, Padillo said he had rescinded. There was no question that he had sent out the notice. And so the loan contract was canceled and the note and mortgage were rendered void. This doesn't come out of thin air. The Federal Truth Lending Act things explicitly, and the Supreme Court says that if a statute says things clearly, then that's the statute and the courts can't change it. The problem is that nobody other than myself and a few other brave souls took it seriously until the Supreme Court in January of this year, almost a year ago, uh, uh, corroborated my views on it, which is merely to say they corroborated that the statute was clear and that judges uh, didn't have any right to rewrite it or reinterpret it to mean something different than what was said. And I think that rescission is clearly going to define the the mortgage marketplace and the foreclosure scenario increasingly as we go along. And the banks know about it. I've gotten, uh, through anonymous sources, copies of the PowerPoint presentation given to lawyers across the country who represent the banks. They know they're screwed. Bill Patello, uh, whoops, see, I just did it again. <laughs> Bill
Bill Pamelo <laughs> is a life educator that I've known for two years, and he's been so polite in never correcting me when I said his name. Um, uh, he has the BP Investigative Agency, and as a private investigator, now devotes most of his energy investigating securitized loans for homeowners and attorneys. And we have his collaborator, Kimberly Cromwell, whom I just realized and spoke to her. I remembered her name going way back to 2008. A certified paralegal who, who provides litigation support to attorneys in helping homeowners protect their property rights. They're quite a team. Bill and Kimberly have been investigating some specific companies, such as Washington Mutual Bank F.A., which, if this wasn't a regular public show, I would offer what the F stands for. America's <laughs> host and American Brokers Conduit which are actually non-existent entities that are identified as lenders on perhaps millions of fake mortgage loans. <clears throat> In the case of American Brokers Conduit, I happen to know because I litigated a couple of cases involving that, there is actually a company that is incorporated in New York State, located, I think, in New York City, called American Brokers Conduit, Inc., they have nothing to do with any of these loans. And yet, on the note, on the mortgage, you will see these three non-existent entities, Washington Mutual Bank, F.A., America's Wholesale Lender, and American Brokers Conduit. You'll see them over and over again on hundreds of thousands or perhaps even millions of fake mortgage loans. Bill and Kimberly are finding evidence these names were used to conceal the source of the funding up for the loans. And the intent to securitize the loan, which Bill and Kimberly contend were fraudulent omissions. And I completely agree with their contention. In fact, I don't even think it's a contention anymore. After all the billion, multi-billion dollar settlements and all, after all the fabricated documents, it's hard to characterize the behavior of the banks as anything but outright fraud. Bill and Kimberly have written an e-book that I referenced a moment ago that I endorse and I strongly suggest that when it is in final publication, that each one of you get it. Uh, uh, it, it is, uh, it's short and very well written and gets to the point. And they are, despite the amount of time that went into researching it, they are selling it at an extremely low price uh, that I... Uh, I don't know the exact price, but I know what their range is. So when the uh, uh, 
what do you have a name for the book that that you're going to use? Cable funding and yes, cable funding and securitization go hand in hand. Okay. Um, so they explain what table funding is, which is, uh, to me, it's amazing that lawyers don't quite get what table funding is. They think that table funding means, means the same thing as funding. Table funding means that a trick was played on the borrower. Table funding means that the loan was predatory per se, according to Reg Z. It means it's against public policy. And if that's the case, they should not be allowed to seek an equitable remedy because they don't have clean hands, because by definition, they are using instruments that are against public policy, and they have what we call dirty hands. So they also looked into what types of companies engaged in the table funding, why concealment of the real lender shows an intent to to securitize. And those of you who have been reading my blog know that the claims of securitization actually fail, and Adam Levitin actually gave it a, a, a name called securitization fail. And what are potential legal claims homeowners may have when they identify the loan that was table-funded or a fictitious name that was used on the loan documents. Uh, Whether it's a fictitious name or it was a real name, if it was table-funded, it wasn't funded by the party whose name appears on the note and the mortgage. Bill, Kimberly, welcome to the Neil Garfield Show. Thank you very much for having us on, Neil. Uh, we appreciate it. Hi, Neil. So, Thanks. Let's start by telling the audience a little bit about each of your backgrounds and what you are currently doing in connection with mortgages, foreclosures, and rescission, et cetera. Bill? Okay, well, um, it's hard to believe I'm going on my sixth year now um, as a private investigator focused exclusively uh, in the area of foreclosure defense litigation and uh, dealing with all of these issues. Um, I've been, uh, I've got about 17 years of experience combined in the law enforcement uh, area as a police officer and about 10 years experience in the mortgage industry myself. Uh, back during this whole period of time and run up to the uh, crash. So uh, I was able to sort of meld those two backgrounds into um, my career now as a as a PI. Um, I've been doing this again for now six years, to which I, I, I'm well over 800 investigations to date across the United States. So um, I pretty much work with attorneys uh, and a lot of pro se litigants um, all over the United States. Uh, investigating issues pertaining to their foreclosures, and I'm also now a fully qualified expert witness, as I've been uh, viewed as such by various state and federal courts uh, across the country. So, um, again, uh, when you do this exclusively for as long as I have, uh, hopefully I'm getting better and more skilled each day, and, and that's sort of the whole 
basis of this book is a culmination of years of research uh, and putting all this stuff together in a concise package and, and making it understandable for the layman out there uh, to understand. And it's, it's, it's very um, hard to imagine that after all these years of, of continued um, foreclosure fiascos and the foreclosure crisis as it continues on to this day, that there's attorneys and judges who still don't understand the terminology and these issues that are are still that that went on and are still continuing even to this day and so so therefore this is the reason one of the reasons to uh to to put this book book out there Kimberly well, couldn't agree with you more and uh um i assume well i'm going to put the link up on my blog but for people who want to get the book uh they can go to your website which is bp which is not to be mistaken with british petroleum <laughs> bpinvestigativeagency.com and or you can go to Kimberly, who we're going to hear from in a moment, at info to fight foreclosure dot com. Info to fight foreclosure dot com. So Kimberly, answer the same thing. How did you get involved with this, and what are you doing? Well, I. You know, my background, professional background, uh, was uh, selling and marketing software, uh, IT management and, and CRM software. And in 2008, I ran into a problem with my loan, which was serviced by Wells Fargo, in which they had told me to withhold three months' payment in order to qualify for a modification because I had an adjustable rate mortgage that was exploding. And through that process, uh, needless to say, I was one of the first people probably, you know, one of the first million that were dual-tracked before it became illegal in the state of California and consequently lost my lost my property through this foreclosure. Became so enraged by and, and angry at the process of which Deutsch and Wells Fargo handled this and the whole, and I sued them and the whole legal process of it that, um, you know, it changed me. It changed my life, and I realized that I was in, I was in the wrong business. So I uh, became a paralegal. Went to school, got my study, did the paralegal studies, got my certification as a paralegal. Now I'm a first year law student. I uh, support attorneys that are consumer defense attorneys that help only homeowners fighting against these for these foreclosures. And so I've been a paralegal now for the last three, three and a half years, uh, again, working with attorneys. And then I also write a blog, Info to Fight Foreclosure. And, and the purpose of the Info to Fight Foreclosure, Neil, is one of the things that was very frustrating for me um, going through this process was trying to understand uh, all the legal terms in, in, layman, in layman terms, you know, trying to understand, you know, when you say table funding or you say securitization, what does that mean? You know, I can go read, you know, technical terms about it, but half of that was great to me. So I write a, I write a blog and I put up documents to help people understand uh, terms that are very important in this war against the banks uh, for our home. Let me just stop and you there. Okay. 
do you find that when you explain this to attorneys that they have trouble understanding it even after you've explained it? Uh, I Yes and no. I think that they, they get the concept, but then they want me to explain it technically. It's like they get with the, what I'm saying, but it's like, okay, but now you got to show me or help me understand how you would legally argue that. How would you plead that? How would you prove that? What is the evidence that you would need? So they, they put me through the paces to kind of back up what I'm saying to them. Yeah, and I don't find a, I, I mean, I have three attorneys that I work with pretty consistently, uh, and I've talked to other attorneys. They're few and far between, unfortunately. Yeah, I find that my my five minute consults turn into an hour for exactly the same reason. They 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 hear part of what I'm saying, and now they want me to effectively spoon feed them what the pleadings should be. And uh, uh, and and Bill and you are included in this effort. We're creating a national organization to have uh, uh, assistance to attorneys in the drafting of the pleadings and the investigation that is largely absent on the homeowner side because of lack of resources. But go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted. No, 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 I'm glad you did, because because that's what the info to fight foreclosure about, is trying to put it into not just, the, you know, the terms involved with the with the, uh, the mortgage fraud closure, but also one of the things that I found as a, as a homeowner, and I had an attorney that uh, that litigated my case for me, and, and he was good, but he would do things, and I didn't understand why he was having to do things, and I didn't understand what the motions were about. So, so trying to understand just the basic, lit- you know, basic litigation 101, you know, you, you file a complaint, it, you know, that's just the beginning of the process. I, I think sometimes people think you file a complaint and you're done, now you just wait for the judge to make a decision, and, and they don't understand all of the rules that you have to follow to be able to be heard in front of a judge. So the, the, my website now, I try to translate that into into simpler terms um, so that the average person can read it and understand what does the complaint mean, what is a demur, uh, what is a motion on judgment for pleadings, you know, what, whatever the motions are, whatever the next steps are, um, just try to put those into simpler terms for them so that they can understand uh, how to go fight for themselves. Because, you know, Neil, a lot of people, and if they're like me, um, you know, Wells Fargo was just, you know, they were just sucking me dry up all my cash. I mean, my payments went up quite a bit. And so I'm paying, you know, on modification payments and, you know, paying money out to the attorney, and it just it really drained me financially. And so I could see where this would drain, you know, and it does drain families. They're trying to protect their homes, and they're if they're paying these escalating arms, then oftentimes they run out of money. And and as well as there's other reasons why they might run out of money, so they have to they have to represent themselves. And I don't advocate this because this is very very technical. It's a very complex issue. The majority of attorneys and, and judges don't truly understand what is happening here, and so it's always to a homeowner's advantage to have a professional attorney represent them. But sometimes that just isn't possible. And so for those people that it's not possible, I, I try to write the blog and, and uh, put resources on the website to help them through that process. 
One of the things that uh, I find uh, disturbing uh, kind of echoes uh, what Chief Justice Warren Berger said many years ago, and that is that most attorneys attempt to do trial practice without knowing how to do trial practice, and by the time they uh, raise an objection, the time has passed to raise that objection, and so they're overruled even though they were right. And the, the yeah. I think that kind of goes with what you're saying about uh, uh, both the attorneys and pro se litigants. Bill, um, uh, based on your experience now over six years, you certainly have seen your share of people who have been required, as Kimberly just said, to litigate themselves because they couldn't find an attorney who would take the case or who would do anything with it. Could you talk a little bit about your experiences with pro se and why people should be getting a lawyer if they can, if they possibly can? Well, I think that's a great question, and I think I can answer that from personal experience. Um, I think... Uh, the whole reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is much like Kimberly. I was personally affected. Uh, I have uh, the case that you referenced uh, here earlier, and I also still have a current active federal case on another property uh, of my home in Montana. So when I first started out in 2010, uh, it was the learning curve was straight uphill. <laughs> I had no knowledge of any of this stuff, and yet... Um, I was hunkered down in the in the remote mountains of Montana with, uh, thank God I had the Internet, trying to figure out what all of this stuff means. And in the process, I think it's kind of funny that, you know, I'm still fighting to this day, and I've survived to this day in a lot of these fights, but um, here I was, uh, you know, conducting very complex litigation in federal court with, you know, no background in law or any of these things. And I was able to uh, take on these you know, large law firms and all the deep pockets and, and, and put up with, uh, uh, you know, it was like you know, trying to defend the Alamo here. Um, and in that process, I mean, I certainly made a lot of mistakes. And there's a lot of, I wouldn't recommend Pro se uh, uh, for my worst uh, nightmare or, or my worst enemy out there, I should say, because it's a nightmare. Um, but there's a lot of pitfalls, and that comes from <clears throat> generally people making assumptions um, and ba making legal conclusions without really having the facts to support their arguments. We all know that this was a giant, massive scheme created by Wall Street. It's very obvious. Um, but part of the beauty of that scheme is that these crooks made it so complex that people can't understand it. And by the time they detect it, it takes years and years and years. Well, I'm still learning. I'm still figuring out. But as these facts and having you know buried my head into this stuff uh, exclusively for the period of time I have uh, and working with all these cases around the country, I've developed quite a bit of you know quite a database of information and comparing notes uh, in all, against these entities that we talk about here in the, in, in the book and others to really start to put together the, the, the facts 
properly so that these arguments can can actually be made. I mean, it's been this crisis is going on and on for years now, but we're just getting to the point now, and I think Kimberly can contest to this or attest to this that uh, we are now just starting to have enough information gathered to to effectively make these these arguments. It's becoming much more clear now. And uh, and so even though a lot of time has passed, I, I still you know have hope and optimism that we're moving in the right direction and that the things are that the tables are turning to some degree. I still believe they are. I think rescission is a the Jesnowski decision was huge, but putting these facts together in the right context and in the in the way to argue these things effectively within the statutes and the laws that are written, and and again I think Kimberly will agree with me on this. That is the only way we're going to get good case law written uh, and good case law uh, uh, against the banks and in favor of the consumers. Because to date, there's been two, there's been an awful lot of pro se uh, cases filed out there, and I don't, I don't fault people for having to fight on their own. But unfortunately, it's also made for some very bad case law that we have to, that, that people have to overcome. But it can be done. It's just that we have to make sure that the the evidence. Uh, and, and the information is properly uh, gathered and it's properly argued and, and explained so that the, the judges out there can clearly understand why these are violations and why the homeowners are entitled to relief. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I got somebody who's been waiting with a question for 30 minutes here. Let me switch to them before we get to your, more to your book. Um, area code eight seven two, first three digits two three zero. Do you have a question? Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you. Hi, um, real quick question. Uh, what do you recommend, like step one, two, three, for the homeowners that uh, did um, a rescission? Maybe three or four or five years before a foreclosure case where the whole thing was ignored, but, you know, they provided all the information, Dodd-Frank, et cetera, to all the parties through their representatives and everything, and they went ahead and totally ignored that um, and went, went ahead with a foreclosure and a, a sale. Um, what do you recommend for that homeowner to try to suggest to a possible attorney that, he finds, in order to have it go back and rewound and maybe even determined as um, a void judgment. Thank you. What what state are you in? The state of confusion. Aren't <laughs> <laughs> we all? Well, I was, That's good. I was born in that state, naked and screaming, too. Which, which state um, is your property in? Uh, it's in Illinois. Illinois. Okay. All right. Well, the answer to the question, um, generally speaking, is that uh, uh, the statutes are being passed, like in Florida. It says that even if the foreclosure was wrongful. Now, I don't know if this is constitutional, frankly, and I don't know if anybody's tested it. 
But the statutes are being passed, and the general feeling by by most judges is that if you're looking back five years, you may theoretically be entitled to walk back into your home, but they're not going to let you do it, and they're going to limit you to monetary damages. So but that wouldn't be bad either, right? That wouldn't be bad either. So while I usually suggest that uh, when you know when I have a client here in Florida, I usually suggest that we file a, an action in uh, federal court. Uh, first count is that there was no consummation, which is something you're going to hear more about in a minute. Uh, the second count is that even if there was consummation, I rescinded. Uh, third count is that they haven't complied with statute, so I want quiet title because they haven't filed the release of the encumbrance. And the p potential fourth count is uh, an injunction against them from maintaining any position in court or out of court with the credit agencies or anybody else as though they were a collector based on these false instruments. Um, and then the the fifth item is an actual case in wrongful foreclosure against the parties who did it after the rescission because they were using void instruments and you have to be careful that you're not going back against the court because the courts are more resistant to that, but that you're simply saying that they led the court or they led the uh, 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 parties involved to believe that certain things were true when in fact they were not true. And... If you've been watching the blog, mine, and other blogs, you've been seeing multi-million dollar judgments based on exactly that. So that's the most I can answer. It's not a legal opinion on your case, but I would suggest you get a lawyer and you could always then consult with me and I can speak more freely to the lawyer who then can interpret what I've said and make suggestions to you. So, back to Bill um, and Kimberly. Well, let's start with Bill. Tell me about this book. And in, in particular, uh, if you would focus in on the whole Phantom, WAMU, FA, ABC, AWL, etc. <laughs> well, we don't want to give all the big secrets away, Neil, but... <laughs> Um, again, as I mentioned earlier, you know, this is a culmination of years of research and data and, and fact gathering and, and research. Um, I, I can't even begin to, to count the hours that have been put into this. Um, the, the general uh, theme, I guess, when you, when you talk about table funding and, and these fake pretender lenders and everything else, in every case that I investigate and every attorney I work with around the country, they come to me and they're trying to make heads or tails of all the paperwork and the, you know, all the uh, paper trail that the banks bring into court, uh, assignments and all that stuff. And I, and I always try to 
reiterate the fact that the focus has to be on the money trail. Okay, that that's what this this all of this really starts with with the beginning of of the transaction, and that comes from who funded the loan and this giant scheme that Wall Street created. And I think you know it's this tomorrow's the uh, premiere of uh, the Big Short, and I'm kind of hoping that some of this is going to be done in an understandable format for people out there. But um, the money trail is where you have to focus. And people are, you know, ask me every day, where do I start? How do I know if, if this guy is a table funder or my lender was? Let me interrupt. Um, yeah. Uh, Bill, would you, I mean, I can do it, but I think people are having trouble understanding the difference between the money trail and the paper trail and why the two should be able to be reconciled, but they never can be in today's market. Would you explain what you mean by the money trail? Well, the money trail, I mean, a lot of this, this book is kind of steeped. There's some some topics in there about basic contract law and the meeting of the minds. And when people come to the closing table and sit down, they're being told and they expect and it's being disclosed that the party on the other side of the table is the lender and that's the party who is actually uh putting the money forward to fund that loan but as you mentioned earlier at the beginning of the show these these were fake entities and pretenders and so we don't know the source of where that money came from and if you don't know the source of that money and if the party across from you is not is an imposter you start to get into these issues of consummation and and all these things that kind of dovetail into rescission and and all that sort of thing. But focusing on on the money trail, I always tell people that you know you have to do your research and and I provide some basic tips in this book uh, of my investigative techniques here um, as to how to preliminarily go in and check on these entities that are appearing on your deeds of trust and mortgages by looking at their names and where to research and look up their MERS ID numbers uh, that are on there. And I give some basic uh, uh, tips on how to go in there and figure out to start delving into uh, these, these entities. And from there, after you look into the SEC filings and you start to peel back the layers of the onions, uh, of the onion, you're you're going to start to discover uh, all kinds of of things that open the door to discovery. Uh, you, you and I, you'll be the first to attest that the money receipts and transactions uh, of of or receipts for the transactions of the assignments and everything else in discovery. This is what they've been stonewalling for years. The banks will not do not. Uh, provide this information, and you have to file multiple uh, compel motions and everything else to try to jar it loose. The bottom line is they can't produce it, and if they did produce it, it's not going to show the, the 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 actual story of what happened, of what they're trying to tell the court happened. Right. The uh, one of the things that I harp on when I'm teaching lawyers is that you don't want to emphasize what you don't know. You want to emphasize what you do know. And if the entity didn't exist, then you do know that that entity didn't loan you any money. If the Yeah, it, correct. If the entity if the entity was a big player 
in what has been called the securitization market, but was basically a Ponzi scheme, then you know that they didn't make the loan. Now, sometimes the originator does make the loan, but then the money trail breaks up later when it comes to acquiring the loan, and that's where the money trail and the paper trail diverge again. The, The whole thing is that the paper should match up to an actual transaction that occurred, like you just said, and if it doesn't, then something is wrong, and in this case, it's not just something. It means that the uh, uh, party claiming to have rights in that, uh, uh, based on a piece of paper has nothing because there was no underlying transaction. So there, yeah, and there was, you know, there was a, a lot of schemes built within the schemes. <laughs> and, exactly. And one of one of those schemes, what we're trying to talk about here a little bit in the book, is the, obviously the use of table funding. But there's also terms such as correspondent lending, mini correspondence. Uh, there was there were all these you know contractual relationships of these parties behind the scenes to push that money that was collected from the investors uh, up front, and you know because these loans were with the intent to securitize. Were, were pre-sold, and that's a whole other topic for another day. But they were, you know, pushing that money forward by going out and finding bodies to sign on the uh, on the dotted line, so they could they could execute this scheme. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff here that I hope we are, we we, ex- we do a, a good job of explaining in layman's terms and helping uh, everyone out there to understand these these, these issues. You guys did and, a great. And we also- and, oh, I was just uh, going to say, we also do it with the car. I'm sorry, Neil. Uh, oh. Let me give, give out the, the telephone number if somebody wants to contact you guys. 406-328-4075. Yes, Kimberly. Uh, well, I was just going to say that we also go into uh, securitization and, and what that means in terms of, I think a lot of times when we use that term, Neil, people don't really, they think that means that it's just depositing that into a remit trust or transferring over into a remit trust, which is why we see so much focus on the assignments of the trust. And really, securitization is about converting that note into a security inv- investment, taking it from a secured mortgage investment under UCC-9 and converting it into this security investment under UCC-8. And when they do that, they introduce other parties that have adverse interest to the borrower, and and it creates all these problems that the borrower doesn't even know about. And, And they knew this when they were writing the loan. When they were closing that loan, they knew they were going to securitize it. And so we talk about that deception, because every person that enters into a contract is entitled to the benefit of the bargain of what they believe they are entering into. And so and so we help, uh, hopefully help homeowners understand what that means and why that can also be grounds for lack of consummation, you know, fraud and inducement, um, you know, those, those kinds of issues that come up when when the object of the contract is not what both parties believe it to be. Gotcha. Well, believe it or not, 
we have used up our allotted time. Uh, caller from 770-978. Call my scheduling number, 954-495, uh, what is it? Uh, 9876, uh, and uh, we'll set up something to answer your question. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bev uh, Kimberly. And Kimberly. <laughs> hey, Merry Thank Christmas. You. No. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show. A presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.